0: Well, what do you do when the world falls apart around you? The Psalms truly do carry us through the gambit of emotions and feelings as we live this life of faith. There are times when we read of those at the height of joy and gladness. There are other times when we read at those in the depths of despair there are times such as the psalm that we considered last week, Psalm 32, when the writer leads the congregation to worship on the basis of his personal experience, and then there are times such as our psalm for this morning, Psalm 46, when it's not the personal experience but rather the experience of the community that is in view. Just as in our day, there are times when the events that, there are events that take place in the world that affect the entire community of believers, and And therefore, the entire community joins in either to mourn or to rejoice, to lament or to give thanks. I've said frequently that the life we live is a life lived in community. Most of the time when the world falls apart around us, we tend to turn inwardly. We fall away from others. We turn away from the church as we consider it, not the people of God, but rather we consider church one more thing to do, which I shouldn't have to do because I'm suffering. That's how we think. However, as the people of God, we were never meant to be isolated. We were never meant to endure life alone, to suffer alone, or to rejoice alone. Psalms underscore that truth, again, as they represent communal mourning, communal rejoicing, communal encouragement, communal faith in the Lord and his purposes. What we need in life as Christians is not the Americanized idea of self-sufficiency, but rather the biblical reality of interdependency. We are a body, and collectively we draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Collectively we grow, we mature, and collectively we find our confidence in him alone. Our psalm for this morning shows us a community of believers who know how to endure hardship. They endure hardship, they endure difficulty and distress as a community learning to trust in the Lord as a source of their confidence. And now more than ever, I think this is a message that we need to hear. Well, if you haven't, go ahead and turn to Psalm 46. I'll read the text, we'll pray, and then we'll look at it in detail. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when, she, when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. is our fortress. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is true, and that you sanctify us through your word. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, in times of distress, the people of God find comfort as they draw near to the Lord, who is a source of confidence for his people. We see that the Lord is a source of confidence in three ways in this text. First, he is the help of his people. That's in verses 1 through 3. Second, he is the heart of his people, verses 4 through 7. And third, he is the hope of his people, verses 8 through 11. He is our help, he is our heart, and he is our hope. Let's look at that first point. In times of distress, the people of God can be confident knowing that the Lord is our help. Again, verses 1 through 3, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Well, from the onset, we are reminded that this is a community-oriented psalm. He says, again, God is our refuge and strength. The focus of this psalm is not the experience of an individual, but rather the experience of a community. The community is in distress. We'll see that in just a little bit in more detail. And the psalmist, a worship leader, identified as one of the sons of Korah, is leading the congregation to remember an essential truth about who God is. This is one of the things that I've said frequently during our Bible study. If you can't figure out the exact meaning of a book of the Bible or a passage of Scripture, one of the easiest things you can look for in the text is what does it say about who God is? Identify what it says about who God is. And if that's all you get from reading your Bible, that's enough. That's good. You can meditate on that. You can chew on that. You can grow on that. Well, this psalm is very clear from the start. It has a very clear declaration of who God is to his people. He is Again, our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, we understand this is Hebrew poetry, so he's not referencing God as three completely different things here. It's all the same thought. In this one line of Hebrew poetry, the first half is sharpened by the second half. The first half, God is our refuge and strength, has ideas that are further clarified. in the second, he is a very present help in trouble. Now, we may on some level understand what it means that God is a refuge. We don't tend to have a great deal of use for that terminology in our day. In their day, the term was extremely significant. A refuge was a place that you would go to hide from trouble. Perhaps there was a significant storm. Maybe someone was chasing you. Maybe a city or town was being attacked by a neighboring army. You would seek refuge, a place of shelter, a place of protection from impending danger. For well, the Lord is a refuge for his people, but he's also strength. Not only is there a place to hide yourself in the event of danger, a place of shelter and protection, but he is a place of strength. He is strength itself. He is strength personified. A shelter is good. A strong shelter is better. But again, he doesn't stop there. These two words, these two ideas are further sharpened by the second half of the line. He is a very present help in trouble. In other words, the refuge is near to you. The strength is near to you. It is not far. This is not a refuge that you need to travel 10 to 15 minutes to find. You see in some stories and some movies where there is impending attack on a city and the leaders of the city say, all right, we need to evacuate all of our people out of there. We need to get them to the stronghold, right? But but then someone says, well, the stronghold's like, you know, they got to walk through the mountain pass and they got to go under the, this thing and they got to go through the woods and it's over the river and, you know, n- behind grandma's house. You know what I mean? It's, it's a little ways away. <laughs> and so they're in distress because they don't know if they're going to make it to the stronghold in time before the attack comes. Well, God is not that kind of refuge. He is a near refuge. He is close to us. He is a very present help in times of trouble. You won't have to look far for him. You won't have to look far for that kind of strength. Our God is near to us. I've said frequently, unfortunately, again, one of the standard responses in times of great turmoil and distress is to simply stop. Stop showing up. Stop showing up to the fellowship. Stop moving forward. Stop engaging. Stop sharing. Stop speaking of what's going on in your life. We do that because we come face-to-face with our weakness our inability and because of our pride we think that others don't need to see all that we think we need to be stronger or else we think that even if they did see that it's not their burden anyway eventually that leads to more thoughts of loneliness and a cycle repeats itself over and over again in times like that what we need the most is not to distance ourselves from others but it's to gather together with others And particularly so that we can be reminded by others that our God is near. He's not far from us. Back in our text, clearly there is some kind of significant trouble, right? Verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its swelling, its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, it's unlikely that they were actually facing such a significant physical disturbance as envisioned in these words, right? This is poetry. He says the earth gives way. The mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. The waters foam and roar, and the mountains tremble at its swelling. These things are not literally happening. There was some kind of physical threat, likely, perhaps again an attack from a neighboring nation. The term nation is used frequently in the psalm. And of course, throughout the history of the nation of Israel, they face significant threat from their neighbors. Collectively, Israel was facing a massive threat that they could not handle on their own. But the point of mentioning, again, what appears to be a potentially life-threatening event, using the language that it does, is to paint the picture of the reality of how we sometimes feel about things that happen. The earth may not actually give way. The mountains don't actually get moved into the heart of the sea. I mean, that would be awful, right? But something is happening in their lives to the extent that it feels that way. There are some events in our lives that make us feel that there's no coming back from. That there's no way we'll be able to return to the normal of yesterday. There will be a new normal, and we're not sure we're ready for that yet. Those events don't merely define us, they redefine us. They redefine our lives. We have those things on an individual level for sure, but we also have those kinds of things on a corporate level. Sometimes we lose one in our number. (laughs) Maybe we realize that our finances are not in the best way. The roof springs another leak. I mean, you name it, right? Any number of things, those significant things that happen that make us feel like and wonder if tomorrow is actually going to come. And I want to make sure you understand that having those feelings is not wrong. It doesn't mean that you're broken. It doesn't mean that you're abnormal. We all struggle with those kinds of feelings from time to time. Having the feeling is not the problem. It's what you do with it. When we're at our lowest, we may hear a text that says that God is near, but we wonder if that is true. That's often the biggest question in times of turmoil and distress. Where is God? How could a God who is near allow my beloved one to become sick, to have that particular disease that threatens their life? How could a God who is near allow a little one to lose his life? How could a God who is near allow that young married to lose their spouse or for their relationship to end in divorce. How could God allow those things to happen among our people? Why didn't he prevent it? Now, this text doesn't answer all of those questions, and I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers to all of those questions, but for the Christian, it does answer one of those questions. The question is, in turmoil, in times of distress, where is God? And the answer is, he is always near to you. He hasn't left. He isn't absent. He's right here with us. That is a truth that we must cling to. It's stated very simply and plainly at the beginning of the song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That is an objective truth that every believer can count on. I don't feel him near sometimes. Again, your feelings are not the problem per se. It's how you respond to your feelings. And the reality is that sometimes our feelings lie to us. They don't paint a picture of reality. They are our emotional response to what's happening. But our feelings don't change the reality of who God is. Perhaps we say, oh, well, I don't hear from him right now. Well, we know we don't rely on an audible voice or even signs to affirm the authenticity of God and his nearness. You may not hear him audibly. You may not receive particular signs that you recognize, a word from a friend, a word on television, a song played, some other cue that you're looking for to, quote, hear from God. We don't need those things when we have his settled word. We have, again, Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We have Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for the night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. We have Psalm 31.3, you are my rock and my fortress. We have Psalm 32.10, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I like Psalm 34.15, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. God is still speaking his word is clear he is with us he is near to us. Maybe we just don't like what's happening. Maybe we feel like we just can't trust a God who would allow this kind of thing to happen. Well, I wonder if we've ever thought about that thought that through who would you rather be in control of the universe? I mean, what's the alternative if God is not in control? Chance. You, you prefer a universe where chance, which is not a thing. We all understand that, right? Where chance rules. Or maybe you prefer to be in charge yourself. I mean, y'all wouldn't want me in charge of the universe. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Um, we would work all things out together for our good. But the reality is that God is in control of the universe. And because he is in control of the universe, because that is true, we ought to be willing to accept good from his hand as well as adversity. That's what Job said. And whether we like it or not, adversity is going to come. That's one thing that God has never promised us. He's never promised us that we wouldn't experience pain and difficulty living in a fallen world. But he did promise to be with us. And that's the truth that keeps us and that encourages our soul. He does affirm that he is with us and this is a truth that we can count on and a truth that we must consider and we must consistently remind one another of. Remember, this is a song that's being sung. By the people of God. We see the ours and the we's and the us's, the plural collective pronouns intended to make clear that this is a song that we sing together as the people of God. I wonder in times of distress, do you consider the Lord to be your help? Do you seek Him as your help? In times of adversity, do you seek to hear His voice through His Word? Knowing that even if you can't look at the Word of God on your own, you can come to the fellowship where the Word of God is central. And we sit around the word of God together on Sunday morning, whether it's through our prayers, through the songs that we sing or the preaching. We sit around the word of God. The focus is the word of God every Sunday morning. And so this is where you need to be, especially when you are in the midst of trial. So that you can hear from the Lord and be encouraged in him. heard a lot of people struggle with not only hearing the voice of God but also asking for wisdom and knowing what to do in certain situations and prayer is one of those things that we are to do corporately and we're consistently encouraged to do corporately and we make time to do corporately as a people of God and sometimes people say that they don't know what to pray or how to pray and they don't know Maybe, you know, when it comes to singing songs together in the fellowship, they feel like their voice is not good enough. But the reality is that God has so designed the body of Christ to not be about you. And your presence in the fellowship of other believers is not just about you. It's not about your comfort level. It's not about your ability. It's about the fact that you have the opportunity to remind your brother or sister who's sitting next to you of what is true. Again, the we's and the ours in this passage, as we're singing this song together, we're singing to one another as much as we're singing in praise to God. When we pray together, we're praying for the the benefit of one another as much as we're praying to give glory to God. Well, the Lord is the help of his people. He's also the heart of his people. Verses four through seven. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the most high. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This psalm is sometimes referred to as a song of Zion. Zion is a poetic name for the city of Jerusalem. The songs of Zion were songs that particularly emphasize the centrality and importance of Jerusalem as a place where God dwells with his people. Jerusalem was the center for worship. It's a place where the tabernacle was settled and later where the temple was built. It's a place where all the people of God would travel to celebrate the various feasts and sacrifices according to the law. Zion, or Jerusalem, is the place where the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob met with his people. This psalm is intended to remind the people that no matter who's standing outside the city gates, that the Lord abides in the midst of the city gates with them. He is at the heart of their existence and the root of their confidence. He says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Remember, again, Jerusalem was a city like any other. A water source was essential for the success of any city. And water, a water source ran through the city, made, provided water for the city. And Jerusalem had that kind of water source. And that would have been essentially a source of life for the city as they channeled it to various places in the city so that there was water readily available for the people. In the context of this psalm, God is that source of water. He is the source of living water for his people. He is a source of life for them. Therefore, again, they are glad. In the theology of the psalms, there's an inherent reality of gladness and joy that comes with being in the place where God is. Wherever God is, there is gladness and joy no matter what may happen. But again, ultimately, God is a source of life for his people. He is just as that river, that stream that ran through the city of Jerusalem. That the focus is Jerusalem is affirmed in the second part of that same line. It is the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. The city of God, again, Jerusalem is the, the holy habitation of the Most High God. When God is referred to as the Most High, it speaks of his majesty, his rule, his sovereignty, his exaltation over all. He is the Most High God. And even though that is true, he condescends and he abides with his people. He lives with us, among us. And because God dwells in the midst of his people, again, in the context, Jerusalem is safe for his presence sustains their life. Verse five, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. God is in the midst of her. And therefore, she shall not be moved because God is in the midst of her. Because God dwells with his people, Zion will never be moved. It'll never be uprooted. It'll never be destroyed. The people of God have a security and assurance that goes beyond the possibility of any legitimate threat to their existence because God is with us. Look again at the text. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. There will be nights There will be darkness at various points in our lives. Again, there will be those seasons that we referenced earlier when it feels as if life is coming to an end because there's an overwhelming threat. He says in verse six, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. But the truth of this passage is that though there is a night, dawn will always follow. Just as sure as the dawn follows the night, God will help his people. His life will sustain them. All he needs to do, as it says at the end of verse 6, is utter his voice and the earth will melt away. This is the truth that we cling to as believers. This is a truth that we consciously consider in times of distress. This is a truth that fuels our confidence in the midst of all of our distress. Again, we've spoken of the Psalms as a songbook of the church. The song-like nature of the Psalms is clearly seen in the structure of this Psalm. Look again at the flow of the Psalm in your Bible. Again, verses 1 through 3 are kind of an introductory summary statement of the message of the Psalm. 4 through 6 are like the first verse or refrain, and you have a chorus in verse 7. Verses 8 through 10 are the second verse or refrain, and then you have a refrain or chorus in verse 11 it's set up just like a psalm you would you would normally expect to see a song verses 7 and 11 function as that chorus it is a repeated line for emphasis to underscore the point of the song in this case the truth of it is the confession of the people of god throughout all generations look again at verse 7 the lord of hosts is with us the god of jacob is our fortress that is our confession. Again, this is the confession of each individual believer. It's the confession of the community of believers together. The Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, he refers to him as the God of Jacob in the second half of this line. He is the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is his name. He is the pre-existent, self-existent creator of all things. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who commands the hosts of heaven. Legions of angels are at his disposal. He is the power of the armies of heaven at his command. The Lord, that Lord, is with us. He is our fortress. He is not only near to us as a refuge when we need help, he also dwells among us. His presence sustains our life. Even when we cannot understand what's happening in a life, when we don't know why it is happening in life, when we feel that all of our life is falling apart around us, one thing we can know for sure is that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I've referred to John chapter 10 frequently where Jesus affirms that he holds the believers in his hand, that his father, who is greater than all, holds all of his people in his hands and that no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. And what we just read in Romans chapter eight, that there is no thing in all of God's creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is with you in all your distress and all your trials and all your pain? Do you consciously consider that the Lord is with you and that it is his presence that sustains your life? Sometimes what prevents us from believing that the Lord will sustain us is our lack of faith in God. We become so overwhelmed with the reality of our distress that those things start to become greater in our mind than God himself. We put more faith in the greatness of those things than in the greatness of our God. Sometimes what prevents us from believing that the Lord will sustain us is that we attribute our lack of faithfulness to God. We're not often faithful to others. When they fail us, we reject them. When they disappoint us, we reject them. When they hurt us, we reject them. And we in turn project our lack of faithfulness to others onto God. But the reality is that even though we do fail him at times, we do disappoint him at times, we do hurt him at times, God is not like us. He is faithful. He is the epitome of faithfulness. He is strength. Again, we talked about that earlier. Therefore, he is a fortress for his people, not because we are always faithful to him or deserving of him, but because he is faithful. He is good. He is the giver of life ultimately we have that life as a result of our faith in jesus i'm reminded of john chapter 15 i am the vine you are the branches whoever abides in me and i in him he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing and the point that jesus was making there is that him being the vine means that any branch connected to him has the life of the vine and if you are connected to him that life will never be cut off If there's ever a time in which you are separated from the vine, you won't have the life. And so you won't be able to bear fruit. But the fact that you are connected to the vine means that you will bear fruit for him. Because of that relationship. When we talk about salvation, we talk about it in terms of eternal life. Eternal life is something that we have when we put our faith in Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3 that Christ is our life. He is the source of life for us. He is the vine. We are the branches. Because that is true and we can never be separated from him, doesn't matter what happens in the world. It doesn't matter what happens around us. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. Because we'll always be connected to the source of true life. We'll always have eternal life as we trust in him again that's the point in this passage in psalm 46 those who in whom God abides as a river which flows into the city of Jerusalem those who have the life of God abiding in them by faith in the lord jesus as a true vine these never have to fear they will never be moved that has everything to do with who he is he is the source of life and he is faithful well, again, God is a help for his people. He's a very present help for his people. No matter how we may feel about our lives, about the things that happen in life, this fact still remains. God is our help. He is near to us as a refuge in times of distress. Moreover, he is the heart of his people. Just as a city needs water to sustain life, God is the source of life for his people. He is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of Jacob. He is with his people as a fortress. He abides in them, and therefore their lives will never be shaken. It is not favorable circumstances that defines life for us. It's not the overflow of happy events. It is the Lord who defines life for us. The Lord is the heartbeat of his people. Finally, we see in verses 8 through 11 the reminder that the Lord is also the hope of his people. Look again at verses 8 through 11. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Remember again, this is a community of believers suffering hardship together. This community of believers enduring hardship together endures by reminding one another of the truth of who their God is. These last few verses are an invitation for the congregation to be reminded of the greatness of God and to set their hope on him alone. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Take a look. See what God has done. And these words envision a future time when the Lord will conquer all evil, not just the temporary evils that befall us, not just the localized evils that befall us, but all evil, even to the ends of the earth. Listen again. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Again, in context, this was a national crisis. There was some kind of conflict from a neighboring nation causing Israel to wonder if their world would be completely torn apart by an enemy. And the psalmist doesn't ignore the present-day danger. He addresses that in the first section by reminding them of the nearness of God. But by this point, he doesn't leave them in the present day, but rather encourages them by pointing them to their future hope in the Lord. The greater hope is not that the problems I'm dealing with today will be solved. The greater hope is that someday the Lord will deliver me from all evil. He'll deliver his people from all evil. He will totally get, do away with all evil. In their case, deliverance was from all wars. Again, he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. That is complete deliverance. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. All of these are instruments of warfare. These instruments would strike fear in the hearts of God's people. They will all be completely done, with, done away with. He will bring desolations upon those things. Wherever those instruments of warfare are found, he will destroy them. That is his promise to his people. And therefore, he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. We don't serve a God who promises only to meet our individual moment by moment, self-oriented needs. We serve a God who promises to make desolations of all that which can be used as an instrument of warfare, an instrument of evil, an instrument to affect his people with harm. He desires to be exalted, not just here in Catonsville, Maryland. But our God, the Lord of hosts, the one who is our refuge, our fortress, our strength, the one who is with us and for us. He desires to be exalted, to be glorified among all nations around the entire globe. He has a greater scope in his mind. Again, it will be as Isaiah said. On that day, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As Paul affirmed in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. God is greater than my problems. He will not ignore my problems because they are my problems and he is my God. Again, we sing the chorus, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He will not ignore my problems because they are my problems. He is my God. He is with me. But he is not content with only dealing with my problems today. He desires to deal definitively with every problem, every issue, the whole problem, the evil in the world. God is going to solve it on that day. That is his promise to us. The day is coming and that is our hope, beloved this is what we are to encourage one another to consider in times of distress. It's not good enough to affirm for someone that their temporary distress will pass because there will always come another. In this world you will have tribulation. You're done with this problem another one's going to come. But the people of God instead of hoping in temporary relief alone ultimately hope in the final day, when God does away with all evil and distress. Peter says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He means by that, yes, there is greater grace to be had by us. We will possess more of God and be possessed by him fully. But he also means to think forward to the day when God finally judges sin when all things are open and laid bare before him all things both in heaven and on earth are brought in subjection to his son he describes it this way in second Peter chapter three according to his promise we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells can you think about that consider that for a moment there is going to be a day when we will be on earth it'll be a new earth a remade earth But all that will be there is righteousness. No more sin. No more evil. No more pain. No more death. No more destruction. No more disease. But righteousness. God will be there with us. And he will, as it says in Revelation 7. Wipe away every tear from our eyes. On that day, whatever has caused you to weep in the past, whatever is causing you to weep today, whatever may cause you to weep tomorrow, the Lord has promised that he will wipe away your tears. And you won't have to worry about it ever again. That is our hope. Now say also that is the hope of the nations. When we think about evangelism, when we think about preaching the gospel, we evangelize and we preach the gospel, yes, because we're commanded to. But we evangelize and we preach the gospel ultimately because we know that the best thing for humanity is Jesus. It is his salvation. It is his righteousness, his rule, his justice, his equity. It is a day when he truly does usher in a time in which there is only righteousness. When he finally makes wars to cease because he is the prince of peace. Do you think that's a message that the people of Ukraine need to hear? The people of Russia? People in any other war-torn nation who constantly live under the fear and threat of a bomb dropping on their heads or that of their loved ones. They need to know about the God who is coming one day to rule with righteousness, with justice, with equity, who will make an end to all sin and pain in sorrow. You know him, and you need to tell others about him. The text says, Be still and know that I am God. That is a reminder both to us to encourage our hearts, and it's also a reminder to us to go and tell the nations about him. Tell those who don't know him about his goodness, about his grace. Well, again, what are you struggling with today? What has happened in your life which has caused you to believe that your world is ending? If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer in the true and living God by faith in Jesus Christ, and just as the believers of Psalm 46, you always have a reason to sing. No matter what is happening in your life, the true and living God, the Most High God, the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, he is your help. He is near to you as a refuge, a stronghold, a very present help who makes himself available in times of trouble. He is our heart. He is the life of the church because he lives. We live because he lives. We never actually have to fear for our lives because the life that he gives is eternal life. And he is faithful to keep us to the end. He is a true and living God, the most high God, the Lord of hosts. The God of Jacob is our hope. He is our hope, not merely because he promises to be with us and sustain us through our daily troubles, but much more because he promises to deliver us from all trouble, to bring an end to all trouble. He desires to be exalted among all the nations of the earth, throughout all humanity. Thus, he will bring an end to sin and its effect. That day is coming, and that day will be glorious indeed. In the midst of whatever turmoil you're facing today or in this season, the Lord is calling you to be still and rest in the fact that he is God. As we close the sermon this morning, I want for us to confess this same truth together, the refrain from this text, verse 7, verse 11. Let's say this together. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the reminder of this truth Thank you that you are God and that there is no other. Thank you that you are the true and living God. You are the Lord that you have made your abode with us as your people, that you promise to be with us, to keep us, to give us life, that you promise to strengthen us in the midst of whatever trial, difficulty, turmoil that we face. That you promise to do this not because we are always good or we are always faithful, but because you are faithful, you are good, you are true. And we thank you that those things are true of you. And we rejoice in you this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.